What is the vocation that is yours that will be sustained over the years of your life? And how does that inform and shape and give guidance to the occupation you've had? It may not be what you do for the next 10 years of your life. What you're longing for, because you're a human being made in the image of God, is for there to be some continuity, though. Hello, and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. Today, I'm so glad to have my friend, Stephen Garber, known to me as Steve Garber, but professionally Stephen Garber, who is a senior fellow for Vocation and the Common Good for the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. He's also served recently as a professor of Marketplace Theology and director of the Masters in Leadership Theology and Society at Regent College of Vancouver. Regent College is kind of like a grad, it's really a grad school. It is. So uh, they call it a college there, but it's a grad school. You've long been the principal of the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. You regularly blog. I enjoy your blogs, if I may say so. Uh, You've written uh, three main books, uh, Fabric of Faithfulness, Visions of Vocation, subtitled Common Grace for the Common Good, and very recently, The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love, Learning, Worship, and Work. You've had a long and, I'll say, storied and varied and effective career. Uh, Steve, when I when I look at somebody with a long career, I look for a through line, and I'm going to propose that you know you've you've led sort of a, a think tank and you've been a professor, but maybe the through line is you're a mentor. Hmm. You mentor people in business, you mentor students, you mentor people in big businesses, Christian businesses, small businesses, as they try to practice their faith in all of life and especially in the workplace. Tell us more about yourself. What did what did I not say about you that needs to be said? And is my view that you're a mentor pretty is that reasonably accurate? Would you embrace that or would you adjust it a bit? I'm the son and grandson of some good men in the world. Yeah. Um, and so in many ways, Dan, who I am, how I think is really formed out of me being the being gifted by my grandfather and my grand my father. Um, I would say that the questions of vocation and work principally grow out of my watching my father, my grandfather's at work. My father had this interest um, for the whole of his life. How do you help a farmer plant a seed and have the seed grow into a healthy plant over the course of the next five or six months? I thought I would do that too because I was his son, but I didn't like biology and botany like he did, Mm. and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Mm. I think my question in many ways, if there's a thread through line, it would be, not so much planting of seeds in the literal soil, but um, taking the first parable of Jesus, the seed in the soils, and thinking, so what's that one about, actually? Why is it seed in soils like that? And to see that, in fact, it really is a story about what are you going to do with the word of the Lord in your life? Mm. How are you going to work it out in your life? Do you really hear the word of the Lord and understand it? Because, of course, the language of the text is understand means to, to work it out in it's your bear life. fruit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think in many ways that has been you know, a surprise to me, but looking back, thinking, I am my father's son. I'm not my father in every way, though, and his questions were not my questions, though in some deeper sense we've had followed similar questions in life. His about growing a literal plant, mine, so is growing a life, mm. you know, seeing a vocation be identified, stepped into it early on in life. But can you actually keep at that, sustain that, over the course of your life. Yeah, so we might say growth of plants and growth of people. Yeah. Might be one way to say it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You are a disciple, as this program is, of Abraham Kuyper, and you're deeply convinced that every square inch of life is claimed by the Lord. He's Lord of it all. And for you, that means politics and hiking and enjoying nature and culture and helping other people do the same agriculture, poetry, stained glass, cathedrals, literal cathedrals, cathedrals of higher education, small spaces. You're a man who wants to bring the faith to bear in every square inch of life, it seems to me. How, how do you go about doing that? What's the core or essence of the way you approach that? I think you have to believe it's true, Dan. Mm. So if you don't believe it's true, you won't keep at it very long. Mm if you're not really confident that it's true. So I am Kuyperian, like you are, on New Year's Day. What did I do? Get up early in the morning, and I get my 
Book of Kuiper sermons on seasons of the year and the New Year's Day sermons that he gave. And and I every year read them, actually. Mm. I am schooled in that tradition quite yeah. gladly. Uh, but I would say, you know, I'm also a student of Leslie Newbigin. Yes. And I love the language of proper confidence, mm. one of the titles of his books. Yep. Um, What's proper? It, tell us what that means. What does proper confidence yeah. mean? Well, it doesn't mean, I mean, he, the book is principally a critique of the Enlightenment. Mm. So of this fact-value split, mm. of the objective-subjective split we've made over the last several hundred years, thinking, well, you know some things truthfully and absolutely and completely and objectively, don't you? you know? Other things, come on. I mean, maybe Dan's opinion, I mean, not true like that, Dan. Come on, mm-hmm. really. It's not true like apples fall when you drop them from That's your exactly hand. That's exactly the point, actually. Right. And uh, so the book is that critique, I think, maybe as good as we get from what I can mm-hmm. read. Yeah. But the argument is that we don't live honestly in that world as Christian people. The church is not really embedded in that, though it surrounds us all around. So how are we going to critique it, analyze it, but then find our way forward out of it in a way which keeps health with God and holiness of heart and mind and serve the world with, with who we are? So he argues that we have access by the grace of God to a proper confidence, mm-hmm. not a scientific, you know, apple falls or, to the ground. Or geometric proofs. But more like, right. but more a confidence that is born of honest truth, reality, but that it's not, it isn't scientific in that sense. My father was a scientist. I honor that method, yes. you know, but it doesn't explain everything. And well, it doesn't explain, like, uh, I know that my wife and my children love me. It cannot speak to that. And they know that I love them. It cannot speak to that. Right. Yeah. So you can't demonstrate that syllogistically. Yeah. But and, you can know it. But you can know it, you know, and... Uh, so if Newbegin, you know, takes up that question deep in that book is the work of Michael Polanyi. Yes. Uh, and I've been a great student of his in my life, too, mm. you know, of thinking through with him. So here, how is this world-class, globally renowned, Nobel Prize pathway scientist, you know, World War One happens, he's a Hungarian Jew. World War Two happens, he's still in Europe, thinking what happened to Europe in the 20th century, two world wars. He left his chemistry lab at that point, mm-hmm. took up the question of knowing right. afterwards. You know? yeah. And his argument was that we, that we don't actually live in that world. Uh, and or we not most of the time, at least. Sometimes, well, we, you know, we, in the lab. So he says, yeah. you know, which is truer? Who has the more truthful knowledge of bicycle riding? Yes, he says, right. I could ask the five-year-old little girl who learned how to ride a bike recently, do you know how to ride a bike? Of course you know how to ride a bike. Everyone knows how to ride right. a bike, you know. He said, well, let me give you this one piece of paper. I'm right, right. Take it from the, from right. the Nobel the, Prize winning physicist. physicist. Of, of what it takes to ride a bike, yes. And, I remember and he this says, passage. You, know, you know, give this to the little girl and say, well, make sense it's of this It's incomprehensible to her, of course. She doesn't know what it means. It's incomprehensible to most adults. But she, <laughs> says, he says, she says back to him, but I do know how to ride my bike. Right, you know? exactly. And Polanyi's question is, so who has the more certain knowledge? Right. So let me just, uh, since we're on Polanyi for a minute, um, of course, he has a a wonderfully helpful, it could be stinging, I suppose, from a certain perspective, but a wonderful critique of the way science occurs. It speaks to the world of faith, mm-hmm. and, faith and work, which is you may use your method, but who chooses what you're using your method on? <laughs> how do you choose what problems you're going to address? Yeah. And how do you decide this problem is worth even considering and that one is not? And of course, as we know, that, that question, what's worth studying and what isn't, changes vastly. And that's certainly not scientific. That has to do with our core values. And I think Polanyi is the first person to say, I mean, other people have said it, of course, yeah. but I think he made it uh, part, of, part of the common parlance of, of the world of science and the way in which ideologies shape what we do. And it's germane to people that's, that's good thinking, Dan. who are scientists, mm-hmm. I mean, who are listening, who are engineers and yeah. researchers. You gotta let your faith dictate what you're considering we're studying, what problems you try to solve mm-hmm. for a month or 10 years. We love Polanyi. Yeah. We have a lot of common. I'm going to jump to this. I, I wonder if you would talk about this. You and I have an enormous number of similarities. I mean, the list is ridiculously long, including the authors we think are important, like Newbigin, Kuiper, Polanyi, uh, the bad guy, Singer, the, you know, the Cure, McIntyre. We both love the outdoors. We love to hike. We love our families. I mean, the list is, we both love to analyze movies and song lyrics. The list is ridiculous, but we're very different people. Now we are. Very different people. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, people can have a lot of similarities and work side by side and not necessarily understand each other mm-hmm. or not know how to get along. Do you think that's true? Is that, that's a, is that, I think that's a faith and work issue. I'm not saying we don't get along. We do. I'm just saying, I'm saying you can have an enormous number of similarities and be very different people. So what does it mean, Daniel Doriani, professor, that you are <laughs> theological and biblical you know, interest in this world? But what does it mean to be one flesh with a woman, the very same in some sense, yeah. and yet be so da- deeply different from that same woman? Yeah, right. Um, That's for sure. Um, so how is it possible that actually, you know, you could say, you know, I promise my whole being to you. Yeah. She breaks the same promise to you. And then you find out in a week that we're different <laughs> like that. Really different. <laughs> right. I would just say, in my mind, that's the way the, of, of life, really. You know, I'm a great student also, Dave. We didn't mention him yet, but of Wendell Berry. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Another interest we both have. And yeah. he has, you know, books and books and books, but some of them are books of essays. Right. I was surprised the first time in reading one of his essays, this essay where he says, you see, it's a lot like marriage. He was looking uh, at some kind of, you know, geographical, agricultural right, right. question. I think, yeah. what do you mean a lot like marriage? <laughs> but then... I find out that almost every essay he writes, Dan, he says the same thing. Yeah, he has an abiding interest in marriage. Even in his best book, the name I can't, can't, the barber, I can't say his name. Jaber Crow. Yeah, he doesn't get married, but he's kind Uh, of married to Jesus. He's kind of married to, yeah. You you could say, I don't want to give the story uh, away. uh, Uh, It's it's, uh, a a re-study of the the monastic kind of dedication. Um, So, but let me ask, can I just stick with it a second? Uh Uh, How would you, I mean, you counsel people, you work with businesses, Mm -hmm. Christian and non-Christian. What would you say to people who are very different, but for some reason they don't get along? You know, we have Lencioni writing his books like six, how the dysfunctions of teams and Mm -hmm. six kinds of creative genius or working genius. And, you know, there's a lot of study of, of why teams don't mesh. What do you say? You say sometimes it's a lot it, like marriage? Sometimes, what well, is like marriage? Of course it is, Dan, because it has to be. But sometimes they do and sometimes they don't mesh. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just think, it was a good idea. We tried. <laughs> this didn't work really, right. you know. Um, and there's true. maybe there's heartache. Maybe there are tears. Maybe there's anger. But sometimes yeah. it just doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, but I do think on the other side of it that because it is a capital R reality that it's a lot like marriage that even the best of businesses have different kinds of people working for them and working right. at them, really. Yeah. You know, I'm involved with the project right now. It has, you know, just physiologically, you know, a five-foot-six kind of a guy and a six-foot-five kind of a guy. Oh, yes, you know? right. One is European personality and European. One is very American, American personality, yeah. you know. And the one is politically left, one's politically right, you know. Do they um, collaborate well? They've done this for years, really. Oh, good for them, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we they talk about it, yeah, right. You know, and right. you have to kind of decide what matters most to us yes. if we're going to keep at this together. I just which, want to which, which is which is a lot like marriage. Yeah, they talk about it because I think when teams don't function well, it's often because somebody's afraid to talk, yeah, or or afraid to tell. I mean, look, telling the whole truth can be dangerous, of course. It can interfere with speaking <laughs> the truth in love, but they don't tell enough of the truth, yeah. and so they can't work their way through their issues. That is true. So um, I'm going to go to, uh, you know, early life. Um, so you've been in D.C., Washington, D.C., most of your life. Yeah. And you live in the leafy suburbs. I don't mean to say you're a prosperous person, but you, you like to have some land around you and trees and flowers and a little oh, bit that's of, true. of nature. Mm-hmm. So yet you're in D.C., which is very much a city. And a lot of your life has, in the early stages especially, you help mentor people who want to go into politics. And to some extent, you wrote a book called The Fabric of Faithfulness that came out of that experience and tried to help, I'm going to say, 18 to 27-year-olds or something stay faithful in that crucial period of life, the siren song of fame and power and the love of Jesus. You are poetic, Dan Doriani, after all. I only write poetry when I'm despairing, but you're very kind. What would you? How did you go about mentoring people in that world? Mm-hmm. You can't mentor somebody who doesn't want to be. Yes. So in some ways, it was a self-selected mm. group of people who kept coming and coming and coming year after year. Would you be my teacher? Mm-hmm. So there's that dynamic that gets worked out in this. I, 
would say, given me, who I am, the Kuyperian, biblical, Augustinian roots of who I am, how I think about the world, um, I have a pretty deep conviction, very deep, that the gospel of the kingdom cuts deeper than the partisan divide. Yes, amen. Right. And so for me, entertaining people from all over the country and beyond sometimes who want to come to the city of Washington, to the you know, Capitol Hill, literally, to think about these questions, there were some who were willing to take up that challenge, others who just said, get out of here. You know, you must be, you must be, you know, and of course I wasn't either of those, but if you weren't willing to buy into somebody's partisanship, right. absolutely, then how could you be somebody that you would even want to talk to? Right. That's even got worse. Because it's about worse. winning. Because it's always about winning, of course. Yeah, right. It's always about winning. So and owning from, the other, the libs yeah. or the conservatives or whatever. That's all that language, really. And both right. sides do it, of course. Yes. You know? I would say that for me, the question about mentoring, Dan, is that I wanted them to to form habits of heart and mind that could be sustained over time. Go back to my father's work and my work. Uh, I wanted to see, could you develop a sense of vocation in this world yes. that could actually be something you could keep at for a long time? And, or, are you, or, or are you gonna spin out after a year or five years? Thank you, because some people, um, I've had Jim Talent, whom you might I know, know yeah. on this podcast a couple times, and he's a friend. Mm-hmm. And you know, he finally decided, uh, Although, you know, election cycles were against him and he was voted out. But he decided not to pursue it again, not to pursue electoral politics. He's still very involved in politics. But he said that time of seeking election is over for me. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve my nation politically, but mostly through think tanks and task forces and that sort of thing. And so there's a one. it's fine. I think I hear you say, and I certainly agree, it's fine to work for a year and say, oh, that was fantastic. I learned so much, and I'm not doing that. And it's fine to stay for 40 years. And it might be fine to stay for 10 years and Mm -hmm. then do some other form of political work or social constructive governmental work. I think so. Um, How did you counsel people? I know we agree on that. That's that's a dead end question. So how do you you counsel people when they're trying to discern their calling? I always, well, eventually, sitting down with somebody, I probably will get out a brown paper napkin, mm-hmm. and I will talk about the difference between vocation and occupation. Ah, oh, yes, thank you. Go ahead. Um, and they're different words, different ideas, and they're mm-hmm. important for us to distinguish between them, because they're not the same thing. We could speak about, a, vocation's a complex word, it's a multifaceted word, it right. means a lot of things, but we could speak about the vocation of, you know, attorney, the vocation of professor, the vocation of marriage, we could also speak about the vocation of politician. We could do that meaningfully. But that doesn't mean that being an elected official is the only way for that vocation to be expressed. Right. You could do that in different kinds of ways, of course. Um, so for me, I'm trying to listen to somebody and help them, whether they're a 25-year-old or a 55-year-old, to help me understand why it is they feel this tension over my life, what I'm doing with it, what I'm not doing with it, what I should be doing with it, um, what I want to do eventually with it. Um, and I wanted them to somehow, in the car- course of the conversation, to begin to understand that what we're asking about more importantly is, so what is the vocation that is yours that will be sustained over the years of your life? Yeah. And how does that inform and shape and give guidance to the occupation you've had for these three years, these 15 years, it may not be what you do for the next 10 years of your life. Right. What you're longing for, because you're a human being made in the image of God, is for there to be some continuity, though. Which, which fits more in the realm of vocation. Yes. If I, can, if I yeah. hear you yeah. saying, yeah. I, I think we maybe yeah. express ourselves a little differently, but same idea. Yeah. Occupation may be just how you earn your money. Yeah, it could be that. And, and then maybe some people have certainly told both of us, I'm only really doing what I want to do, what I'm called to do, what I'm made to do, maybe in, in five hours a week or mm-hmm. 10 hours a week. Yeah. But I'm willing to work for a living the other hours. And occasionally people will say, you know, I just have to earn money. My vocation is to be a songwriter, but I'm a sound engineer. That's mm-hmm. how I get paid. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I do the other at night. And I would say that those are... So we want to move from occupation yeah. to vocation as much as we can. As much as we can, longing for the coherence. Right. But realizing that in the now but not yet world, right. no one, whatever we might think about them from a distance, but when you get close enough to know, you realize that no one sees a complete overlap between vocation and occupation. So true. 
everybody takes out the garbage is one way to say to it. To put it literally metaphorically. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And, you know, the concert pianist, yeah. oh, I want to be a concert. But they practice scales two and a half hours a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they get arthritis in their hands yeah. Yeah. and so forth. Every, I agree, everybody has to go through the uh, the ardors. And sometimes, Dan, we could just press into the different dimensions of all this. But sometimes, of course, because of his history, politics, economics, there are bigger maybe we could use the word systematic or systemic right. troubles that trouble the world and that people find their way a hard way into anything they want to do with their lives that matters to since matters to them they want to do they find any happiness in and sometimes of course in the woundedness of the world that's true too uh, so i have my antenna out for that as well yeah or to, to use something from the news right now i mean there's a war going on in ukraine there is and there are people who have skills that they never anticipated using as a defense force right. and they're going to do this for maybe a year two years three years and that'll be um painful but imperative for the ukrainian forces and then they'll take some part of that which is currently an occupation but it draws on at best the leaders are drawing on vocation leading people logistics Etc. Maybe uh, transportation of, yeah. of food and right. and supplies, and then it'll inform their life. We hope they have a way to let that inform their life from that point from onward. From that point onward. Yeah. So there's that overlap. I mean, whoever thought they were going to be a warrior yeah. when they're 38, but still, it's drawing on their vocation mm-hmm. to some degree. Because the vocation is fundamentally, who are you then, right. and why are you? Yeah. And then we have to give up their preferred vocation, the particular form of it, during the war years. Yeah. And then go back to what they wanted. Maybe right. they were farmers they could be. or something, yeah. and they can't farm right now. Yeah. Well, um, just to switch uh, gears just a tiny bit, but not, not totally, can you just give us some ideas about how faith would shape people in particular areas? Just pick one. You work with corporations, supply chain, agriculture, marketing, mm-hmm. politics. Yeah. Just imagine somebody walks in. And they say, oh, Stephen Garber, I've read your books. All I do is ship stuff from point A to point B. I'm a Christian. I don't know how that informs what I do. I, or I market bread. Again, so, you would talk to people yeah. for an hour and let them listen. But what might you want to lay in front of people? So years ago, when I got involved early on with the Mars Corporation yes. and this project that's been named the Economics of Mutuality. Mars Corporation is as not M&Ms. Flight to Mars. As as an M&Ms. It's a candy M&Ms firm. People, yep. Yeah. Go ahead. A family-owned company, 100 years old. Yep. Uh, but I was asked to take part in a global symposium at the Mars headquarters on marketing. Okay. And so there were the CEO, the CFO, and you know, higher-ups. all those people. Higher-ups, people in the corporation. Yeah. And a conference room at the headquarters. And they invited people from all over the world to come in and speak for two days about marketing. Okay. And... I was the last person on the docket, actually, two, two days into it, the very last person to speak. Okay. I've been asked to speak on the vocation of marketing. Uh. Is there a vocation in marketing? Is there, does the idea of vocation in any way shape how we understand marketing? So I heard all kinds of people for two days just increasingly impressed and maybe a little depressed, thinking, mm. they're so smart, and they know everything about marketing. Yes, right. You know, ah, you know a guy who's like one of the, maybe the global expert from London on, you know, End point, you know, you know, when a grocery store puts Oreos up in the right, end, right. you think you maximizing profit you, you by did, the you low whole, location. You right. did your whole PhD and on yes. Oreos at the end of the aisle. Ah, and you're so smart, <laughs> really. Um, I spoke at the end, and I won't obviously do more than just reflect a little bit on it, Dan. But um, I began by talking about being a five-year-old in Davis, California, our first television, black and white. Um, seeing the M&M's commercial come on. Mm. I remember it still, because the promise was M&M's, melts in your mouth, not, not your, your hands. Not your hands, right, yeah. I believed it, of course, because it was on TV. <laughs> Until I was about eight, nine, or 10, thinking, but it does melt in my hands, <laughs> you know? What's this about? Well, what they meant was you can hold it longer <laughs> than usual without the chocolate melting. <laughs> right. Well, I started there. I actually found on YouTube that commercial to become my little end of yeah. the two-day, you know, lecture for them, um, said, you guys said this. The problem is, in marketing, eventually you have to actually say what you mean and mean what you say. Yeah, right. Otherwise, the business doesn't keep being a business over right. time. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I went on from there to other things, but I had two interesting responses to Anne. One guy, one was a guy from the UK, not the Oxbridgean, you know, person you might hear sometimes, but this was more of a Cockney. Okay, you know. a Liverpool he, guy or something. He was, you know, the person who said to me, I run, you know, this division for, in, for the Mars Corporation in the UK. Uh. I've done this my whole life. He said, I just need you to know, hearing you, that I've always thought that what I did in selling stuff like I do was pretty much just like the end of the game. Like mm. it was nothing glorious about it at all. He said, but the idea that there could be a vocation in this, mm. that changes how I think about things. Yeah, right. I walked out of the building you know, an hour or so later. The guy with me walking down the elevator and, and all was the advertising executive from London who I'd followed in the last of the presentations. The guy knew everything about mm. everything. The brilliant about, man. You know, and he said, this is my last day of work. Oh my! You know, I'm flying back on the flight from Dallas to London tomorrow. Tonight, right now, I'm done now. As of as of for my life, really, he said, I've never ever thought though that what I did could have been about something that mattered. Oh my, that's sad. Yeah. So uh, one of my fr- one of my daughters is in marketing, hmm. and blessedly she markets food that she mm-hmm. believes in for yeah. a firm that treats people well. Yeah, good for her. Good for her. Yeah. But she also sometimes, like everybody in marketing, wonders, I mean, wouldn't don't people have to buy food anyway? Yeah. And who needs to market food? Everybody needs to buy food. Mm-hmm. And I say, but your food actually is good. I mean, the store that you sell for is, it's good food. Mm-hmm. And you're pointing people to good food at a good price in a store that's kind of pleasant to shop in. It's not meaningless. No. And, of course, we have had you know we probably both had that conversation with marketing people and transportation and packaging people many times I mean, you know, because you and I think about so many things so similarly Dan Doriani you know we would use words like sometimes some hours but not today probably commodification yes right you know um, but if everything becomes a commodity everything becomes something to sell that's a hard place to find your way out of and through. Or if you're only trying to maximize profit. If that's the only ambition you have, right. the only requirement you have, because much of the marketplace lives by Friedman's rules. Yeah. You know, the only rule is to maximize shareholder profit this quarter. Right. And so one of the things that a lot of people, I mean, she does it. It's one of the things she does to some degree is help with store layout so it's actually a better mm-hmm. shopping experience. Yeah, good and her. that counts. And I feel that when I walk into a store. Yeah. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. So you asked more about, you know, the mentoring of business people, but I, I'll reflect a little bit more on the Mars Corporation people, but I began to listen to them to asking deeper questions about business, thinking, but why does that matter to you? Mm-hmm. And why would you ask that question then? Right. Um, and finally, I gave them an essay to read by Wendell Berry okay. called Two Economies. Mm. And I won't go into the detail of the essay here other than to say, here is Berry called the most prophetic writer in America today, you know, and much loved in many ways as a writer. But he has an essay, Two Economies, where he says, well, there's always two economies wherever you look in the world. There's an American economy. There's a St. Louis economy. There's a, you know, there's a St. Louis bread company economy. Mm-hmm. Um, those are lesser economies in his mind, though. Mm-hmm. But he says there's always a greater economy, too, though. And the greater economy is the world that really is there. And you don't get to choose that one. Mm. You don't get to like it or prefer it or want it. It's It's, what is. It is what is, actually. Mm -hmm. And he says, Dan, in my terms, it's the kingdom of God. Mm. But you can call it what you want to call it, but it's reality. You can call it the natural order if you're a secular person. You can do whatever you want to do, but he says it's the way the world really is. He says eventually every lesser economy has to play in the world of the greater economy. Do you know Vaclav Shmiel? Do you know I who do. he is? Yeah. And how the world really, the way the world yeah. really works. Yeah. And of course, that's lionized, also now criticized. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's a, it's a dose of reality kind of book. Yeah. Which I gave them an essay to read, and they said, "Well, can we meet Wendell Berry?" <laughs> so I said, "Well, we'll see if we can." So we yeah. went down to his farm one day, and spent a day just talking about our thinking about the meaning of business and of money yeah. in the marketplace, um, the very way that he. Listened was fascinating because he wasn't sure what to make of us. Because we, of course, this is Wendell Berry after all, and these guys make M and M's for the world. But yeah, um, he, he's not totally enamored <laughs> with with probably everything that not he everything. would think happens. But I, I said to him, but, that kind of corporation. But I said, but it's a serious question, and we want to ask you some serious questions right. too. So, anyway, the very end when of the day. When he's critiqued by by certain sort of profit first, come on, you well, got to make money. Because that's I think of course, he's absurd. 
because he's a socialist after all, or he's absurd. Yeah. You know, I mean, and he wants to live off the land. Don't you know? Land, nobody can know, live off the land anymore. Really, except he did serve us a meal that his wife made, uh, completely off the land of their farm. Yeah, I'm but sure. at the end of the day, Dan, as we were walking away, he said something which has been etched into my heart ever since then. Mm. He said, "You know, listening to you today, I would say if you want to make money for a year." You ask certain questions, don't you? Mm-hmm. But you want to make money for a hundred years, you have to ask other questions. Right. And I would say that if I'm going to be mentoring somebody in the work of the world, whether it's business, whether it's education, whether it's politics, you know, I mean, so much of politics, and it always has been this way. But right now, we're living with a terrible moment in American political history. You know, when it's all just, you know, I'm going to stab you in the back before you stab me in the back. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, there's nothing good about that for the commonwealth, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the common good of America. We won't continue on. We can't continue on if we continue to play politics that way. And view each uh, other as enemies. And enemy. you view each other that, that way. Yeah. You know, so if you're not asking in some ways, whether it's, again, a marriage, asking uh, the hundred-year questions. Lifelong marriage, but which we, we don't mean serial marriage, we right? We don't mean Just that. We, we, so you could yeah. say, well, I want everything out, out of this in a year, and I'm done. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be happy happy for a year. Thank you. Yeah, you know? that's a terrific that's a terrific point because um, you have to constantly ask the question: Am I in this for the short term or the long haul? Yeah. And marriage is a great analogy. Of course, some people view it short term, mm-hmm. or you know, till happiness do us unhappiness happiness do us do part. Us, yeah. do us part. Yeah. And others say, no, it's till death. I'm I'm going to work with you until we're happy again, not because we're unhappy right, right now. So I would say in my my son, one of my sons would say to me, he's a pretty attentive kind of a guy, and he would say, Dad, you cannot not be a teacher, can't you? Can you? Right, right. You know, you're always teaching, aren't the you? The question is only whether it's public or one-on-one in small groups. Yeah, so right. I'm, in some ways I'm always thinking through. And I think in some ways for whether they're a 25-year-old who's laboring with his or her vocation in the world or whether it's a 50-year-old business executive, I'm asking similar questions, right. wanting to get at deeper issues right. of can you keep this going in a way which matters to God and to you over the years of your life. That's a great question. Thanks for that. We're going to take a very short break and come back and hear from Steve and Garber, known to his friends as Steve. And we're going to talk, we're going to shift over to things like our aesthetic sensibilities mm-hmm. and hiking and stained glass windows mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Hi, I'm John Perkins, Executive Director of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. You've been listening to our podcast, Working with Dan Doriani. The Center also offers conferences on faith and work throughout the United States. Our goal is to equip formal and informal leaders to make a difference in their corner of the world. We equip Christian leaders to run 10-hour faith and work cohorts on three continents. Please visit our website at faithandworkstl.org to see how your church or organization can form a faith and work cohort for people who have or aspire to a leadership role in their workplace. Now, back to Dan. So, Steve, you belong in the faith and work space, but in the faith and work space, you really excel at the artistic, aesthetic perspective. We might say the um, philosophical, the personal philosophical perspective, but you come at it through um, through an artistic lens, I think. So... You know, we've both both been to the stained glass windows at Saint Chapelle and Saint Chapelle. Sorry, uh-huh. uh, and I'm not. You know uh-huh. French, and I don't. I don't I, either. I have the right, right to butcher uh, it. We, we all do. We all do. Anyway, to those famous stained glass windows in Paris, uh-huh. and you know, you rhapsodize in your book for uh-huh. pages about the awesome, transcendent uh-huh. value of the experience. And I, I was in the same place, and I was, I was transfixed also, but I kept thinking. Why don't they have ladders so we can see the rest of this? <laughs> and that apparently, maybe that thought occurred to you, but it it uh, it did not have much of an effect. Tell us how the aesthetic sensibility can deepen our vocation and can deepen the way in which a business person, manufacturing mm-hmm. or politics, whatever. But a business person, somebody is in the business of producing things for a profit. How can a business person grow by keeping the aesthetic it's and a artistic dimension alive? Dan, you just asked. It's a complicated. It question. is a complicated question. I realize that. But so you're, I, would, you're, I, would, I would begin at I the beginning, capable, yeah. and I would say, well, you know, the very first words of Genesis are, 
and God did this and He did this and did this and it was good and it was good and it was good. Yep. You know, so there was some sense. Some sense is it technically good? Is it morally good? I mean, it's but hard beautiful. to know. It was beautiful good right. too. Yeah. Somehow it was beautiful good too. From the very beginning, that mattered. Right. You know? Um, when I'm in a certain place in the world, I was in the Lauterbrunnen in Switzerland this past year, thinking, God in heaven, what did you do here? <laughs> That's so beautiful. You know? Right. Eight miles long, half mile wide, 72 waterfalls coming in. You think, yeah. this is amazing, oh Lord. Yeah. So God did that. He made yes. that world. But then, of course, in the unfolding of his people's lives, his pilgrimage over from Egypt to the Promised Land, the very first time he talks about work, Dan, about a vocation and the Holy Spirit too, the Holy Spirit being given to give you skills to do the work you do, is for artists. Yes. Ohayaleb and Bezalel. Made the the tabernacle. And when you look at the detail, I did it again in the last few months reading the detail, you think, God in heaven, you ma- this mattered to you. The very detail, didn't it? The detail, the I mean, instructions. The, the pomegranate coloring mm-hmm. mattered to you. Yes. You know, and the gold thread mattered yes, to the you. Yes, threads, one by you know, one specified. And that somehow all this was really important to you, O oh Lord. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Uh, I am somebody who listens to people all over the world. I have read Malcolm Muggeridge of late. You know, mm-hmm. I read Something Beautiful for God. Um, I love the imagery of Something Beautiful for God. That somehow, you know, whatever is the work we do in the world, she was not making, you know, stained glass windows for chapels in Paris. She was caring for the death, for the people who were dying Mm -hmm. in Calcutta. But somehow to be captured by the language, but she did something beautiful for God. Um, I think there's something, you know, made in the image of the creator, God as we are. I remember being transfixed by, being uh, being taught by Edith Schaefer many, many years ago mm. when I was a 19-year-old in a book called Hidden Art. Right. And she made this, a, a, to me, a brand new argument, which has been transforming for me. She said, we are made in the image of the Creator God. We, therefore, are called to be creative in every part of life. Mm. So there's something about who God is and who we are as image bearers of God where creativity matters not just a little bit, but maybe even supremely. So, uh, of course, I agree with you. But let's pretend, pretend. that there's somebody who's sitting here and okay. thinks, oh, come on, Steve. And I see her right Creative there. in every area of life. You've got to be kidding me. I'm a short-order cook. I mean, I'm, my job is to get hamburgers out. Now, admittedly, I'm at a restaurant that's, you know, it's not, it's not uh, fast food. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit higher. But my goodness, come on, I'm just putting out hamburgers. And, and then we might say, we might say something like, <clears throat> but don't you try to improve your hamburgers? Don't you try to make them taste good and look good as well as be nutritious? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't you try to put maybe the, yeah. the lettuce on so it's pretty instead of just thrown on? Mm-hmm. Is that what we say to them? Or that's maybe part of what we say. What else do we say? Maybe a housewife or house husband who's cooking and maybe they have some artistry, a little bit of art, maybe not much, a little artistry in the way they prepare the meal. Mm-hmm. How would you so answer as I said this earlier? That's part sometimes, of it, because of history and politics, and you know, unfolding, you know, broken realities in the world, people are put in positions where they just wash dishes in the back of a restaurant. Right. Immigrant from Mexico last night. Right. You know, that's my work. I'm glad to have a job and right. get out of here. Yep. You know, I get that too. But it's also true that we are image bearers of God always. We never stop being that. So in my mind, that kind of person, you know, somebody once, a pastor in Phoenix asked me this question some years ago. He said, Steve, you, know, you talk about vocation and work a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm here in Phoenix. He was a mid-30-something kind of a guy. And he said, my social justice friends who are pastors in Phoenix would say to me, come on, get off this vocations right. stuff. This We're is just, just money. pie in the sky. Right. You know, people just, just have to get, We just have to get jobs. You know? right. And he said, what would you say to them? And I said, well, I would acknowledge somehow the brokenness of the world too. Yes. But I would also say, if you're a pastor, make sure that when you preach and pray, you reflect that reality as you preach and pray. That you pray about the issues of the American right. Southwest and immigration and Border conservation and, and all these kind of things. Right. Somehow, that's not foreign to your people's ear. They think he does care about that. We should too. He makes sure us. We see the Bible actually teaches these things to be true. But I would say you also ought to, in some ways, speak to those who are business owners in your church, and making sure that when they're creating employment situations and right. creating that they're actually attentive to 
there are these stories out there as well. So the person who's an immigrant isn't just washing dishes after you give them some flexibility to do some other things. But I would, even, I would even argue that washing dishes, having washed dishes in college a lot was the way I could you know, mm-hmm. earn a little money. And then just washing dishes with family and friends. Yeah. You can be a little bit creative the way you wash dishes. You I can, would say that's the deeper point of Edith Schaefer's work, though, is yeah. that in everything in your life, whether you've thought about it or not, there's an opportunity to express some creativity. Yeah. And when there's not, I mean, I think, again, I mean, you and I can talk about things, things for hours, Dan, but when I was growing up in California, I remembered my father somehow communicating to me that if America was doing well economically, it's because General Motors and Ford Motor Company in Detroit was doing well. Which is now, not Detroit, entirely false, but what Detroit still. did, America did, was sort of yes, the right. bellwether Yes, that was the saying line. for a long time, you know. right? Well, I've watched in the last years, of course. Yes. You know, that hasn't been the case That's anymore. It's no longer the case. And uh, what I began to realize was that people in Detroit, <laughs> they actually knew that you shouldn't buy a, a Monday, car made or, a Monday, Monday or, Friday or Friday afternoon. Monday morning or Friday afternoon, right? Because why? People hated their work so much. If well, you, if you were Monday, going, they were hungover. Friday, they were Friday, eager to leave. Eager to leave. So right. by a Wednesday serial number was the idea. Right. And so that began to th- make me think through, so what's it mean to have a job where it's just so machine-like, yes. so rote? Dehumanizing. That there's, that there's dehumanizing. Because when you say dehumanizing, what we're both saying is no ex- opportunity to express any, any creativity. Right. Or any, in some ways, any responsibility. Right. Which I would link up with creativity. So when I was a high school senior, graduated, I got a job on a maintenance crew, which I had no business working on. I didn't have the proper skills. But one day, there was, there was a box-making machine for this place that created specialty cheeses. And uh, the box maker was away. And I was in charge of making boxes for the day because they just thought I could do it. doesn't matter why. They thought I could do this. And this, this was a gigantic machine, and it took me an hour to figure out how to load the cardboard mm-hmm. and then unload it without a yeah. kind of like Charlie Chaplin, like spilling all over the floor. And then the next hour, I said, okay, I can do this. I can load the cardboard and get it through the machine properly and stack it up and stack it in the right place and run back and get it all done. And then the next question for 15 minutes was, how do I go to the bathroom? And then after I solved that, it was 10.30. I gave thanks I was going to college and thought about that poor woman who tended the pox-making machine. And so we agree that people who are in the realm of routine, of supervising routine work, should do everything they can. Or even creating work, Dan. Yeah. But even if it's like, you know, today there's less and less machine-like work. It's given to machines, which Mm -hmm. is good, but but the leader should be accountable to treat people like people like and people. let them have some yeah. level of diversity as much yeah. as possible. And I would say diversity is a good word, and it might be a lot of good words, but I would not only use the word creativity, but I would use the word responsibility. Yes. Because that is, I would so, say, so much at the heart of who we are as human beings, to be responsible. Yes. And so when we are not allowed to be responsible, we do feel, use the word dehumanized, we feel less than human. Right. And people yearn, I mean, again, to go back to dishwashing, and I would create games. I would try to run out of dishes. I'd come within an eyelash of running out of dishes and then just load the machine to the gills, you know, and get all the, oh, where are all the dishes? Oh, here they are. Here's 400 of them. You know, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, not everybody even has that level of freedom. So we agree that it's good to be holistic. Uh, Just to go on the holistic slight turn, uh, you're a hiker again. And you love the mountains. You love the you love low hiking and high hiking both, and that's something you and I share also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does your the time you spend you spend a fair amount of time outside? How does that inform the way in which you advise or help business leaders come to maturity and responsibility? Isn't it fascinating that people who are business leaders are willing to spend big bucks to go to places outside to learn what how to be a leader? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not rocket science. Yes. You know, I think in some ways to be outside typically doesn't mean that there's one way for this to happen. But I would say there's something about us as image bearers of God living in God's world that needs to see something of the way the world is. Yeah. We in some ways have the cobwebs, you know, they blow away. You know, we begin to think 
streams are like that and birds are like that and yes. deer do that and yes. mountain lions actually do that don't they really <laughs> right, you know? right. and if i actually was inexorably in a, you and, can't and, change and, that and if i was you know really pressing into this i would say you know when on a ropes course you actually helped me get down didn't you right you know and i didn't think about my life like that before because yes. i'm the somebody who got here on my own gumption, my own strength, yes, my yes, own ambitions, yes. you know, and I was realized I was in a situation where I could not get out of it by myself. Yes, right. So we, we lose our individualism to some extent. We can at least when we do that, but we also find out that there's, uh, the world's not infinitely malleable. There's an, it's back to the two economies. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing like getting caught in a snowstorm or a hailstorm. You've been caught in hail, I assume. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's just a very objective reality. And no matter how much you wish it weren't so, you're getting pummeled by ice right now. And it's just a great reminder of our finitude, I think, to be out Which I would say is, is exactly what the gift of the great outdoors is. Yeah. I grew up in California. One of my childhood memories was seeing John Muir's name everywhere. Right, right. Well, Dan Dariani, you're a scholar and a historian and all these important things. You love the outdoors. I grew up thinking that John Muir was a pantheist. <laughs> okay. Because this was Thoreau more than oh, got it, got you know, it, yeah. Calvin, wasn't it? Even though it was John, John Muir, a squat as he was. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until about two years ago that I realized that when, by the time he was 11 years old, living in a little village in Scotland, he'd memorized the whole New Testament mm. and a third of the Old Testament mm. by 11. Wow. Moves to America at age 12, this family. Um, labors away with his father on the farm. They were hard scrabbling to bring into being in Wisconsin. Mm. Goes off to the University of Wisconsin at age 22. It's a longer story. I'm just going to cut to the chase here. But he eventually almost walks his way to California, though yes. not literally. Right. Um, and uh, It took a while to get there. It took a while to get there, but he's there in his 20s already. Um, and he spends the rest of his life on one sense glorying in mm. Yosemite National Park mm. and more. Yeah. Um, but you know what he said later in his life? Fascinatingly. Tell us, he please. He said, um, I don't hike through the mountains. I saunter. <laughs> and he says, you know, the word saunter is a good word for mm. us to think about. Because yeah. he said the word saunter is from the French, santeterre. Mm. So when pilgrims were asked where they were going, they would say, to the Holy Land, mm. santeterre. Mm. And he says, so when I walk through the Yosemite Valley, I'm sauntering through, because yeah. this is holy land, yeah, holy ground. Right. Uh, uh, Certainly, uh, with the right mind and heart, well, it's it always, can be a transcendent It always experience. has to be eyes to see and ears yeah. to hear. Yeah. You know, it never is, never is not that. Right. Uh, but I would say that to go outside gives one the opportunity, maybe with an unusual push you know, from the creation itself. Right. You know, <clears throat> my God in his own revealing of himself in the way he's made the birds and the flowers, yeah. you know, say, what is this? this is why And why is this anyway? Wildly complex and works yeah. so well, even this broken yeah. world. It's kind of like walking into a cathedral that's brilliantly created and executed. Yeah. It's kind of like that, actually. Yeah. 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 It just, even if you don't believe in transcendence, somehow those soaring arches it's hard help not you reconsider. To, I mean, even the secularists would want to give some transcendentalism yes, right. to John mm-hmm. Muir. Right. They have no idea because they never asked the question, right. where does this come from, from you, John Muir? Yeah. You did what when you were 10 and 11? You memorized the whole New Testament? It doesn't seem coherent to them. No. Right. But it is, in our view, absolutely so. Absolutely so. So let me go to rapid fire questions. Yep. And we're pretending you're on an elevator and you have 72 seconds for each question. One piece of advice for people who want to start a business. Does he want to, bu- want to buy this? Are you sure they do? Yeah, they really do. They really, really do. They really do. They want but to that, start a business. They want to create But I'm value. just saying in some ways. Oh, you would ask that question. I would ask that question. I mean, oh, you, got have it. you done the groundwork? Mm. And you know where this is going to fit in the marketplace? Um, and you know what it's going to take to make this work? And you probably need to talk through with them. Do you have any idea what it's going to take you? Right. Because the bankers of the world, you know, are ask a lot harder questions than most people probably do. Mm. Because why? Because their money's on the line. Right. So if you have a, a fly-by-night idea, 
even a better idea than not. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have a thousand ideas every week for new restaurants. Right. Bankers are reluctant to give money to pun restaurants. Why? Because they usually fail. Because they usually fail. Right. Really. So you have to have a particularly good idea mm-hmm. to persuade a banker to help you get the restaurant started. <clears throat> and an execution strategy. And all of that. Yeah. If you could do anything for one year with no impediments mm-hmm. of any kind, you yeah. don't have to buy right. tickets, visas, what would you do? I'd be in a place where I could go biking with my wife and read good books. Mm. That's a great answer. Uh, speaking of good books, what's the best book you've read the lately? The whole life, lately. Lately. Uh, yeah. If I could persuade somebody to read Les Miserables, I would. Okay. It's a big book. It's a big bite to chew, mm. you know. And you can read it in two ways. You can read either read the whole book, as Victor Hugo wrote it, or you could say, I'm just going to skip the chapters on the history of France and get on to the adventures of, of Jean Valjean. Mm. And maybe they're both okay, but you know, it's a bigger book to be read too. But there's no book like that, really. Mm. It is, given our conversation, Dan, a story of vocation lost and found, mm. really. Right. And uh, so it's quite deep that way. For Victor Hugo, who gave no reference, no indication that he believed the gospel to be true, he understood there's a lot, there's something. A lot of gospel. There's a lot of gospel in that story, actually. Yeah. A lot Profound of grace, grace, free grace, all of that, really. Yeah, repentance. So, all of that is true, yeah. really. So it is as good a book as I've ever read in my life. And I mm. would probably say to almost anybody, "Come on in." And of course, then let's talk about it afterwards. That's the last question. <laughs> That's yeah. what you would do. Yeah. And after you're done, let's let's visit. Mm-hmm. What would you like to celebrate in five years? I'll be married almost 50 years by then. Mm-hmm. So you'd like uh, to celebrate that? I hope I do. You know, yeah. I've come to describe Meg as the woman that I love to love. Mm. If I read you know, Augustine and Schaefer and Dubigan and Simone Weil and Malcolm Muggeridge and Kuiper, I also read Madeline Lingle, mm, yeah. the poet, the writer. Right. Uh, she had a a book of poems that I love very, very much. It's called The Weather of the Heart, but in the book of poems, there are seven poems at the beginning that are called To a Long-Loved Love. Mm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, Dan, sometimes Meg and I, even this woman that I love to love, we just don't see things like the other sees things. Yes. And sometimes that gets harder than not, actually. You know, I have found these poems to be way back in, Mm. to communication, to intimacy, to hearing each other again. Um, they're remarkably poignant, they're tender, they're honest. Uh, but I love the image, actually, of a long love love. Yeah. I hope in five years, Meg and I will have had a long love love. I love that answer. And uh, thank you for it. Thank you for your time. Yeah. It's good to be with you today. You too, Dan. Let me remind people that you are a man who has written three books that are worth reading. The first of these is Fabric of Faithfulness. Second, Visions of Vocation, and then quite recently, The Seamless Life. Thanks for giving us of your time. You're welcome, my friend. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you want to put your faith to work and change your corner of the world, visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Look for faithandworkstl.org. That's one word. We'll help you start a cohort with like-minded believers who also want to practice their faith at work. This podcast is donor-supported. To keep us going, please donate on our website. Maybe more importantly, you can support us by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, by liking us, by posting us on your favorite platform or go old school and tell a friend.